Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. I bet you don't think you struggle with greed. Most of us don't. In fact, I've never met anyone who told me this was a problem for him or her. But greed is subtle. It sneaks up on you when you think you're just working towards financial security or building your confidence or taking control of your life. In this episode, we discuss how greed lurks in the shadows as well as how to slay the beast through gratitude and generosity. Here now is Offscript episode 24, Worshipping Money. Today we're talking about the idol of greed. This is the kind of subject that is like bad breath. You never know when you have bad breath, but everyone else does. All right, well, maybe it's not quite (laughs) that clear, but generally people say, I don't have a problem with greed. This is not something I struggle with. But I think by looking at this, I think it's important to take some time to look into this subject and see how how greed works, how it can become an idol. For example, when we see certain people who are working so hard that they have no time for their family or sacrifice everything else just to get ahead in life, then it's like really easy to see greed. But spotting in ourselves is really difficult. So I'm, I'm excited about this topic. I think it's really important. I think it touches all of us, whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between there. And I want to lead off with a quote by Tim Keller from his book, Counterfeit Gods, on his chapter about this subject, where he says, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. How can we recognize and become free from the power of money to blind us? That's the question that I think would be good for us to start with. And I, I realize this is somewhat of an adversarial setup, but I think, it's, I think it's warranted in this case that because it is so easy to spot, let's just assume that we all have a problem with it and hear out what, what God says, what the scriptures say about this subject. And then, hey, if you don't have a problem, you don't have a problem. You're all good. But uh, if, you, if you do, then I encourage you to, to consider this with us today. I think our culture makes it okay and almost commendable to be greedy up to a point. Um, I think if you're at a point where you're really a jerk and stealing from people, if you're um, extorting and stepping on people's toes, then you've crossed a line. But because our society encourages us to pursue our desires, pursue our dreams, the American dream is viewed as such a good, positive thing. Um, striving for our own benefit and for our own gratification. We pat each other on the back for that now, and we expect other people to pat us on the back. Obviously, we're, we don't um, believe that in order to follow Christ, we need to be ascetics or anything like that. But I think so much of our culture is tolerant and even approving of, uh, of minor bits of greed. We all struggle with it, and I think because it's so approved in the culture, it's easy, it's easy to miss in ourselves and others. Within our culture, uh, namely the banking industry, it is completely rewarded. You're supposed to, the greedier the better. 2008 financial crisis, financial firm executives cleared hefty bonuses that year. That was an example that people held up as, wow, you know, that's really greedy. And they were heavily criticized for it, but 
nothing came of that criticism within that culture i think it was noted as a coup Mm. like we got away with this we got these bonuses and life is good i work with a lot of financial planners and one of the top things uh, that they will tell people and this is good advice this is like a virtue of uh owning your own money is pay yourself first. And by that they mean, you know, save for retirement, get your emergency fund, save up before you go splurge. But at the same time, when you, when you are putting yourself first, that sort of creates a working model that ties into greed and ties into, into like selfishness, putting yourself first instead of necessarily stepping back and considering the things of God. Yeah. It's the exact opposite of putting God first. It's putting yourself first Mm. as Christians. That's, that's definitely, that's definitely a non-starter or a challenge to our beliefs. I think of Zacchaeus as a case study in greed because Zacchaeus was a um, wee little man. No, uh, Zacchaeus <laughs> <laughs> was a tax collector in the time of Jesus, and of course, the Roman Empire had occupied Israel for uh, decades before even Jesus was born, and so the way the system worked is they farmed out taxes to these tax collectors who would get it from their fellow Israelites and then bring it to the Roman authorities. And so the way it often worked was the tax collector would require more than what was owed so that they could get paid as well. Mm-hmm. And that salary was totally negotiable. Whatever mm-hmm. whatever you, you a tax collector thought they could get. Sort of like you pick your commission. Right. Choose your own commission. And so... No wonder they were hated. <laughs> right. They were universally despised for so many reasons. One, because they were, they were really kind of facilitating the occupation of the foreign power. And two, because within Judaism, like Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism of Jesus... There, there's a strong belief that God had given to Abraham and his descendants this land. And the Romans had a... They were, they were offering a theological challenge by occupying that land. Beyond just, hey, this is unjust, it's our land, you shouldn't be here. They would bring in all their faith-based sensibilities into the equation, and they would say, you're selling out God by helping these Romans. And the, then you also have the, the severe income inequality where most everyone is living at subsistence, slightly above, slightly below, depending on whether you're in the city or out in the country. And then you have these tax collectors who are the, the wealthy Israelites. Mm-hmm. And so you get despite. So like, why would anyone want to be a tax collector, much yeah. less Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of anal- analogous to uh, modern-day IRS auditors. <laughs> it's, totally, it's not the same dynamic at all. We're not being occupied by, uh, well, depending on your politics, we're not being occupied by the federal government. Yeah, unless you're a libertarian. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it would be analogous to them. So it's greed, right? I mean, Zacchaeus is a greedy little man. Mm. He's not just a wee little man. He's a greedy little man because he is so motivated by money that he's not only just partnering and selling out his fellow countrymen, but he's also a chief tax collector, somebody that is excelling at this or promoted to a higher level. And he's been doing it a long time. Yeah, probably because he's good at his job. So then Jesus comes along and Zacchaeus humbles himself by going up in the tree and he sees Jesus coming and Jesus looks up and he sees Zacchaeus and he says, hey, I'm going to come over to your house today. And at this point, I think it's important to recognize in his ministry, 
Jesus is famous. He's like a celebrity. By the time, this is Luke 19. By the time we get to chapter 19, he's on his final journey to Jerusalem. He's at the absolute pinnacle of his popularity before the triumphal entry, which is his, is his pinnacle of his popularity. And so what happens is, uh, so he's surrounded by people who want him to stay with them. People are telling lots of stories about Jesus. And out of all those people to honor with his presence, and that's really how they would have seen it, because he is a prophet, he is a rabbi, he is a holy man, he is a healer. He chooses Zacchaeus, and that must have just overwhelmed Zacchaeus. And what the crazy thing is, too, is like right after this little interchange, we don't really know how much time passes, but Zacchaeus says that he's going to give away half of his possessions to the poor. I mean, this is if that's not repentance, I don't know what is. I mean, half off the top. And so the problem with greed is no matter how much we have, we always need more. That's, that's like how I'm defining greed here. Right. It's insatiable. Right. So I look at greed as a beast, a smelly, hairy, slobbering beast that is always near you. Like when you go to bed, the beast is in your bed next to you. When you take a shower, the beast is in the shower. When you are on the bus or in the car, the beast is right, and it's always right there. And it's always whispering in your ear, feed me. Feed the beast. <laughs> that is this totally it's quite a silly, dark analogy, Sean. <laughs> totally silly analogy, but that's that's how I think of it. And here's the thing about feeding the beast: no matter how much you feed the greed beast, it always wants more. It always worries. It, like you fill it all the way up until you're so satisfied. Let's say you buy something big and fancy or small and expensive, whatever, and you you have that rush, that consumerist rush of like, I got this new whatever. That beast is already starting to plan ahead. Like, what about when this one wears out? What about when the next style changes? What about when my neighbors get the upgrade past this upgrade? Yeah, keeping up with the Joneses. That's, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, a part it, of the beast. Yeah, it's really insidious. And we don't see it with the beast is invisible, obviously. So we're just like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just being financially wise. I'm planning ahead. But... It, this is not just planning ahead. This is finding something in money that it can't actually give you. And I feel like that's really the center of the issue here. People say they want financial security. Well, what is that? That means I don't. I want to have enough not to worry. Well, first of all, you never have enough. There's no such thing. I mean, if our society today can tell us anything about ultra-rich, the 1% of the 1%, it's that they never feel like, all right, I've got $10 billion. Therefore, I have enough. Anything more than that, I am going to automatically give it away, give all of it away. And not just to make myself look good, to make my company f seem ph philanthropic, and not just to, to benefit from some sort of tax break, just because 10 billion is enough, or 1 billion mm -hmm. is enough, or whatever the number is. There is, there is no number that I know of that people ever throw around, right? Mm -mm. Yeah, with few exceptions. I know Bill Gates, he's pledged to give some massive portion of his wealth to some sort of endowment after his death, I believe. Um, let me fact check that. But uh, And there are a few other people. I, I think Warren Buffett is another one who, serious philanthropist, who has pledged some degree of his, his wealth when he passes. Um, but yeah, by and large, I mean, and there's all millionaires and billionaires that we don't know about uh, mm -hmm. that purposely keep a low profile. And yeah, I would say those, the people that decide to give away their wealth at, at the end of their lives are few and far between. And Warren Buffett and 
Bill and Melinda Gates have created the Giving Pledge, which pledges more than 90% of their own wealth to charitable causes during their lifetimes or upon their deaths. He's already given away $21.5 billion, wow. referring to Buffett. Wow. wow. Cool. So those would be some examples of giving. What I'm concerned with here is this idea that sounds like wisdom that says, I just want financial security. But the problem is there's, there's really no such thing as financial security, if you really think about it, because if you're looking for security in your 401k or your stock portfolio or your investment properties, instead of God, then what you're going to find is that money comes and money goes. Governments rise and fall. Wars, plagues, famines, recessions, economic crises come and go. Where's your anchor? You cannot put your anchor in some sort of financial strategy or endowment or investment. It, it needs to be in something firmer. Like Hebrews 6.19 says that the hope is the anchor of our souls, that mm. belief in what God's going to do in this world to heal it, that's not going to move anywhere. Yeah. And you see this very starkly, you know, where people put their hope and money in the bank crashes and the financial collapse. I mean, there were people that were killing themselves because they had put their hope in money. Yeah. And when their money was gone, there was nothing left for them to live for. That's an age-old thing because you saw it back in the 30s or whenever that, whenever the first financial collapse was. And, then, and you also saw it to a lesser degree, I think, in 2008 where, with bank executives killing themselves. It's not something that is a trend or a fad, this, this putting, putting your hope and your, and your life and your value in money. It's something that it's, it's something that is a characteristic of humans. We're not saying don't save up and don't be wise about it. You should be a good steward, obviously, but that remember that that is on a more superficial level than the greater things that can happen. And your life could take many, many turns and obviously be wise and prepare um, for what you need to. But when you talked about anchor, Sean, um, be anchored in God. Do not be anchored in your bank account. That is asking for heartbreak. Yeah. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It sounds it's- like your bank account, too. <laughs> <laughs> like my bank account. Paycheck in and done. <laughs> Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So we are but vapors. We're flowers in full bloom that last just for a short while. Life is fragile. You could die this year. You could die this week. You could die today. I hope you don't die today. But then whose stuff will it be? Make your life count now by living with eternity in mind rather than just what we can see in front of us because that is that is shifting and that's fleeting and i appreciate you making that corrective rose because what we're not saying here is that money is evil you shouldn't plan ahead you shouldn't have a savings account you should have a 401 look you should have a 401k if you think social security is going to bail you out by the time you're at a retirement age and you're a young adult you are <laughs> I've got some, some other stuff to sell you too, because uh, that, is, that is just like totally ridiculous. Um, so I think you do need to lay up, you do need to prepare, but it's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is greed as a beast that you have to feed because it is something that's twisted in your soul where your reliance, your center is not in God, but in what money can provide you. Whether it's comfort, control, power or financial security what colossians 3 5 says is 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then again, Ephesians 5, so what the Apostle Paul says is put it to death, kill the beast. And then mm. Ephesians 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So look, this is a salvation issue. I mean, if, you're, if, our, if we allow our hearts to be twisted around by consumerism, covetousness, greed, or in some way finding our ultimate security and satisfaction and aim in money instead of God, or in the career instead of God, then we have sold out God and we are idolaters. That's serious. All of these things are idolatry if they take the place of God. And in one sense, they can all be put under the heading of idolatry. Different people have different idols, but we're all talking about, we're talking about all the same things, putting something before God. And, and these things, they creep up. It's not like you, you wake up one day and you're like, I will replace God today with this statue of a dollar bill. You know, that's not what we do. What we do is we just, we just live and do our thing and slowly and steadily other passions, other counterfeits slip in without us noticing it usually. Usually it's not a conscious decision where I'm like, I'm living for sex today or I'm living for my kids instead of God today. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just it's just an insidious. It's it's invisible, and we, we were calling these things out because the, these are these are issues that like maybe are not so out of proportion in your life that everyone can see it, but you have to check it for yourself. You have to look at your own heart. Luke sixteen, Jesus says that no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then the Pharisees who heard Jesus say that, which Luke adds a little parenthetical that they were lovers of money, mm-hmm. they, when they heard these things, ridiculed Jesus. So Jesus is over there saying, you can't serve God and, and money. And they're like, well, why not? Why can't you're stepping serve? on their toes. Right. Yeah. We should expect there to be resistance in our own hearts and in other people's hearts when they hear this message. But the idea is that uh, you have to serve God because he's the only one worth serving. He's the only one worthy to serve. And then you can work heartily as unto the Lord. Yeah. And you can earn and you can accumulate. But it's not, it, then it's not an idol. So if God becomes your center, your chief good, the one who provides lasting satisfaction and meaning, then money will automatically be dethroned. The two ways that I know to kill the beast instead of feed the beast of greed is giving and thankfulness mm. and these are these are like two weapons that we that we use to slay this nasty beast this nasty monster <laughs> mm-hmm. um i think those are great beast killers and we should probably do both yes. probably shouldn't yeah, pick yeah. this beast killer or that one right. but yeah i have both weapons um, and honestly, this is something we may all struggle with daily. We probably all do struggle with this daily. You may need to kill the beast every day, but those are great tools. My dad, he was a great example of giving. And um, it was important to have your heart in it, but the idea of giving to control where your treasure is. We know in, um, in Matthew 6, Christ says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where you know everything will be destroyed, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And through giving, you determine where your treasure is located. 
if you spend it on yourself, if you, uh, you know, if you're a miser and just save up for yourself, your treasure is somewhere in your possessions and your security and your belongings. But through giving and, and through using your money uh, for kingdom work and for the service of God, you set your treasure somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you define, you really define your treasure um, with, you know, with your thoughts in your head, um, with, your, with your actions, and then also with your contributions. These are the ways that you define where your treasure is. Um, and he was a great example of that, too. He also um, did not believe in necessarily a rigid tithe, but that you should give cheerfully unto the Lord. You should give, you know, as God provides for you. My, uh, the pastor that I grew up with always pointed to that verse in 2 Corinthians 9 where it says God loves a cheerful giver and pointed out that that was the Greek word hilarion or something like right, that. Yeah. Hilarion. And he said that's where we get from, you know, hilarious from, give hilariously. You shouldn't give God a begrudging gift. We know, you know, very firmly that's not even the point. If you are giving God a begrudging gift, you're probably still worshiping your idol and then just, you know, giving God an action is like a kind of appeasement. Um, you should give as cheerfully as you can. And if you struggle with that, you can go to God with the most basic prayer. Help me to give cheerfully to you. Help me to want this. You don't have to have, um, you know, magic convictions and, um, you know, magic desires to give in and of yourself. You can ask God to give you um, that spirit and that that generous mindset, and he will give it to you. That is what he wants from you. And he wants um, that giving relationship and, and for you to center your treasure in him and his kingdom work. Where your heart is at is very important when you're giving. And I think we see this in the record of the widow and, and the two mites. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, you have the, the rich guy up there and he's, um, he's tithing to the point where I think he's measuring out his... Is that the same record where he's measuring out his... Uh, his cumin and his, his oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's the same record, but it, 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 yeah, it, it, it would yeah. work. Um, anyway, and, and the rich guys who are, you know, going up there and putting a fat wad of cash in the plate. And then you have a woman who, who is very poor and gives two mites. And Jesus said that her heart was in the right place. Her, she gave, she more. gave more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I think God, as Rose, you were saying, God, God is a God is a guy that knows the hearts of men and he, he knows it's important to have to, to, to give cheerfully and, and for your heart to be in the right place when you give. Yeah, I, I, the heart is really the focus here, and that's important to keep straight because money really is not an idol by itself. It's just, it's just on the surface. So when you think about... So I want you to think about just for a moment here. Think about giving away a bunch of your money. What question arises? Or, Wouldn't be that much. <laughs> <laughs> or think about how would you feel if you lost it all? If, if just whatever you have stored up for yourself at this point, something happened where it just got seized or disappeared, whatever, the economy completely collapsed, and you, you, you now had zero possessions. You, you have the clothes on your back. Um, what, what would that, what fears would come up in your heart? And I think if we're honest, we'd all have certain fears that would come up in our heart, like personal security, creature comforts, yeah, rent, what other people would think of us yeah. being destitute, yeah, uh, a lot of concerns. Uh, yeah, there obviously there would be a lot of concerns. And what I find fascinating is there are the sort of like logical, practical facts of the matter, like where am I going to get my next, you know, survival? Where's my next food? Or, you know, as a parent, you know, like how am I going to take care of my kids if I don't have any money at all? But beyond that kind of stuff, if what comes up in our hearts is I would have no control or I'd have no power or I would have no 
status in my situation. Uh, then that's really a different kind of situation. And this is a, a quote from Tim Keller's book once again. This is page 65. He writes, We are often superficial in the analysis of our idol structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more foundational impulses. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life. Such people usually don't spend much money and live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so they can feel completely secure in the world. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive. These people do spend their money on themselves in lavish ways. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over others. In every case, money functions as an idol, and yet because of various deep idols, it results in very different patterns of behavior. So these are where our hearts get twisted from using money in a godly way using our resources in a godly way in the light of the fact that all good things come from God and that our hope is really in our security and our, our ultimate destiny is tied up in with what God plans to do in healing this world in the kingdom age, that, that can free us from having to always sock away every penny or having to always spend lavishly and we don't really understand why we're doing it or having to always chase power you know, if that's, if that's something that you struggle with. So these issues are deep. This is not, this is not just about money here. I mean, it's, it's how our heart gets twisted around in pursuing money and what is it looking, money is just a means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that example in the book uh, where that guy was saving and his wife was, you know, sort of spending willy nilly, yeah. mm -hmm. his motivation was to feel secure, you know, but it's an illusion because even if your money is safely in the bank and you can withdraw tens of thousands of dollars on a whim, what's going to happen when your wife is in a car accident and she's on life support? What's going to happen when a fire just completely devastates your home? And yeah, you have money to pay for medical coverage. You have money to get another house. But in that moment, when you're sitting there looking at the charred remains of your, of your house, like that money is not doing you any good. The, your life can fall apart even, even when you have money. And you see that in, you know, there's plenty of examples in, in pop culture where, pe where people have money and it's not making them happy. Mm -hmm. Relationships um, always kind of come to the surface as gold in that case. In a fire like that, everything else, you know, can be stubble and can be chaff. But it's a relationship, you know, primarily with God as the primary source of meaning and then also with other people. Money, it can be like laughingly insubstantial, I think sometimes compared to relationships and, and meaningful things in our lives. I want to go back to something you said earlier, Rose, about keeping a daily focus Be on... Daily beast killing? Yeah, killing the beast every yeah. day. I highly commend to you a practice of morning gratitude, that when we arise in the morning, and this is something that I think can really help us to uh, align ourselves, and just it's just simply to recognize that we're alive. Uh, and actually, I got this idea from the Jewish prayer book, now that I'm thinking about it, where like they have a blessing where it's like thanking God that you still have life in you, and that, like that you made it through sleep yeah. and out the other side, mm -hmm. and you didn't die. And <laughs> I realize that's a bit of a morbid angle, but look, every day that I wake up, I thank God, and I say to God, thank you for another day. I don't take each day as like, oh, of course I'm going to have tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to have tomorrow. 
I really don't. I hope I have tomorrow. Chances are I'll have tomorrow, but I don't know that I'll have tomorrow. If the Lord wills, I'll have tomorrow. And then tomorrow, should the Lord will, I will arise and I will thank my God and I will say thank you for another day. Thank you for the, the individuals that I have in my family that, and, and thank you for the possessions that I have. You know, and, and being really diligent to practice gratitude can help us to not get out of balance. I'm falling into chasing this and getting nowhere. I like this idea, and um, I, I'm actually, oddly, so challenged when I pray with toddlers because their prayers are almost 100% gratitude. Thank you for my mom. Thank you for my dad. Thank you for my dog. Thank you for my toys. And, you know, there can be uh, varying degrees of, of heartfeltness in all of that, but I feel like I've like kind of gotten away. Like, I don't know, maybe I feel like that's a little too elementary for me, and I like to thank God it's for his... It's just so easy. Yeah, right? I like to thank God for his... Eternal loving kindness and his <laughs> omniscience. Uh, and then, you know, I go on to ask for things. But I think maybe maybe that element of gratitude, maybe that most fundamental type of conversation right. might be far more beneficial to us than we realize, to pray like a toddler. In addition to gratitude and generosity, which we've already talked about, it's important to keep in mind balance in the various pursuits that we go after in our lives. For example, when you're in your college years, your life is very unbalanced. You're putting in all this work and you're paying for it. That doesn't seem right. And uh, a lot of times people have to work while they're in full-time school and that's an unbalanced situation. And I realize that there are times in our lives where we have to do that for a period, but we don't wanna structure our lives so that we are always working so much that we don't have a healthy balance, especially if, uh, if you're married, if you have children, if you have other people you're responsible for, you're not free to just work late every night. And I know if you work late every night, you will get more money. And that means more financial security. And that means you can go on a vacation. And that means that you can buy the new thingamajig. But that's not the ultimate source of meaning. You know, what, what matters is, is serving God and serving God's people. And so striking a balance and like, and, and if you, and if you say in your heart, if you look in your heart and, and what you see is the beast, you got to kill the beast. You cannot negotiate with the beast. Think of like cookie monster. You're like, all right, I'll give you a little piece of the, from, from Sesame street. I'll give you a little piece of a cookie. Is the cookie monster going to be satisfied with that? Yeah. Uh, no, he's not going to be satisfied with that. <laughs> Sorry. <I didn't> <laughs> no, he, he will not be satisfied with one. He always wants more. That's why he's the cookie beast. That's why he's the cookie monster. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember as a kid, I had a greed problem with cereal. Oh, yes. Yeah, man. The Captain Crunch, we'd, we'd get two new boxes, and I would just tear into that and, and eat probably three quarters of the box like in one single morning. And my brothers would be like, what the hell, man? <laughs> and uh, it was it was funny. Like, I didn't, I remember as a kid, you know, whatever, that, that, that food's there for me. My parents bought it for me. I can have as much of it as I want. But then when I got a little older, being like, man, that is greedy. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like purposely like mowing down on this stuff uh, because I love it so much. And I want to get it before my brothers get it. Well, it gets really bad. And I, I, I might be speaking from experience here, having grown up with uh, two brothers and two sisters and two parents and our, our daily cereal intake was sufficient to go through a, a gallon of milk every wow. day. 
Yeah, ours too. Our te- our, during our teen <laughs> yeah, years, especially. Five kids. And uh, when you start hiding the good cereal box, yeah. like yeah. behind other boxes. Yeah, you know, <laughs> behind like the whole grain checks. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or I never did this, but this this just came to mind. It'd be really devious. Take the bag out and put it in a box of like grape mm. nuts or something that nobody oh, wow. wants. <laughs> that is next level grade. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the moment, the very moment we say, you know what? I'm going to share. Greed is dead. Mm. Just in that very act of sharing, it just kills the beast. And then it's like, all right, I can sort of return to somewhat of a balanced control over the situation here. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Dan. Uh, <laughs> that very heartfelt, uh, <laughs> important example. The, the confession. <laughs> <laughs> confession of Dan Fitzsimmons. Uh, just want to wind things down here a little bit. When we look at the cross of Jesus, we see that he gave everything. He didn't hold anything back. He committed 100% and he did it for others. And that is the example that God gives us of his only begotten son giving himself for us that shows us what it means to be truly generous, shows us what grace really is and gratitude. And in light of the fact that through Christ, God has given everything for us, you don't need a five series Beamer. You know what I mean? Like you can, you can make do with the three mm. or whatever your issue is, you know, whatever that desire for a possession is that's pushing you around, forcing you to make unbalanced decisions that aren't really the best for you. Look, Christ has died. We have been freed from this stuff. We don't need to be enslaved like everybody else. There is a way out and it's, it's doing business with the cross that we will find that freedom for ourselves. Just going back to real quick to something that we mentioned earlier of, of these weapons that we have against greed. And Sean, you mentioned the ritual of getting up and thanking God in the morning. I really like the idea of just keeping it basic. I mean, after the flood in Genesis, he says that day and night, you know, will never, will never cease again. Uh, and just thanking God about his promise that, that the sun will always rise. And in the morning, there's the sun again. When has the sun not been there in, in recorded history? Aside from that record in the Bible. <laughs> um, but yeah, just, 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 just keeping it, just keeping it simple. And uh, I also think that helps you to stay humble, to know that our lives are but a mist and our lives will pass away. And we are so just insignificant in the grand scheme of things. It's like when you stand beside the ocean or you're like climbing a mountain and it's just like, you realize how, how you're a speck of dust or a grain of sand and just being thankful, keeping it simple, thanking God for causing the sun to rise again. And keeping our anchor in eternity because Mm. what's significant about us is not how great we are compared to other people. It's the fact that we are God's kids and that he finds value in us. You know what I mean? And because of that, we do have tremendous value and tremendous hope. But it's not because we are so big or so strong or so smart or mm. so wealthy. <laughs> I was going to say, I think this, um, this conscious, mindful gratitude also fosters a strong relationship between you and God. If you look at him as your caregiver, as Jehovah Jireh, as provider, um, there will be a warmth of relationship there. Thanks again for listening, guys. Definitely visit reststudio.org. And if you want to send me a box of Captain Crunch, that mm, will be great. No me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening. I'm going to say goodbye in Arabic. Wadan. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? 
Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.